Welcome to the Brew Theology Podcast. I'll be your host today, Janelle Apps Ramsey, and we're going to be talking about Islam. Today we're going to interview Iman Judah, a Palestinian-American Muslim that lives here in Denver and works by helping people through education and immersion travel to the Middle East. We're just going to sit down and talk with her about a presentation she gave us called Islam 101. If you want to learn more about our speaker today, you can go to meetthemiddleeast.org and see what it is that they do and provide. I wanted to share with you her bio and then just tell you a little bit of what we've learned as we've had this discussion several times now in Brew Theology. Iman is a first-generation Palestinian-American. She is fluent in Arabic and maintains a second home in Ramallah, Palestine. She is the co-founder of Meet the Middle East, a locally-based nonprofit that aims to foster relationships between the Middle East and the West through education and immersion travel. Iman also teaches the other enrichment courses, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict from ancient history to today's headlines, as well as life under occupation, a Palestinian perspective. And she regularly guest lectures to various groups in the Denver metro area about Islam and the geopolitical situation of the Middle East. One of the things that we've learned as we've had this discussion now several times at Brew Theology is that for many of us, the number one problem we have when we talk about Islam is that we don't know any Muslims. So I just want to encourage you that when you finish this conversation, and if you have, first of all, if you have questions, please reach out to Iman and ask. She'd be happy to answer them. And second, find a Muslim friend, whether that's someone at work that you could get to know better, or someone in your neighborhood, or maybe you need to go to a meetup and find someone to meet that way. But the best way that we can bridge the divine between a lack of understanding of Islam and the lives that we live every day is to make those relationships. It really is the number one thing that has come up. Also, just take time to educate yourself. Find some good, neutral, well-known resources to use and look at in order to learn more about Islam and have a more well-rounded view of what Muslims actually believe. I know sometimes in the news we get a very specific view, and it can be a very narrow view, and we just have to remind ourselves that that's not all of Islam. Uh, Every single person that we meet is just like us. They have their own story, and they want to share that with the world. So please take time um, after you've heard this to go out and meet someone and talk with them about Islam. So I hope you enjoy this. Uh, Iman is great. Make sure to uh, find us on all your podcast locations, iTunes, Google Play, uh, Podbean, Stitcher, any of those. You can follow us on Facebook at Brew Theology and on Twitter at Brew underscore Theology. Instagram is also at Brew Theology. So we'd love to hear from you and we hope you enjoy this podcast. Welcome to the Brew Theology Podcast. Tonight we'll be talking about Islam and looking through the eyes of a Muslim. Tonight is brought to you by Grandma's House Brewery in Denver. They're on Broadway in Mexico. And they have a history of not only brewing their own beer, but bringing in other people that want to brew. They allow them to use their equipment and uh, brew so that they have a constant changing lineup 
from multiple brewers producing under the same roof. Uh, they, on their website, they talk about how they aspire to become one small part of our great Denver brewing community, and they want to showcase amazing products made by small producers right here in Colorado. The two that they provided for us tonight to support brew theology are both from a Cleveland brewer, so we know that they're rooting for the Indians tonight. And we have uh, the Wee Scrooner, which is a Scottish red, and also Five on Rye, which is a rye IPA. And so we're really thankful for their support, and um, we love going there. It's a ton of fun. Tonight at Grandma's house, they're probably playing bingo. And so if you ever want to join them on a Tuesday night, feel free to do that. We just want to thank you for following Brew Theology. Uh, you can follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Brew Theology or on Twitter at Brew underscore Theology. And we are getting uh, close to having everything up and running, so just uh, keep an eye out uh, for new developments in the Brew Theology world. Tonight I'm here with a couple of friends, Dan, Leah, and Liz, and our special guest, Iman Judah. Iman is an American Muslim, and she is here to talk to us about Islam and teach us stuff that we don't know. We were blessed to see her uh, give this speech last week, and I learned a lot of new things, and I'm really thankful for her being willing to come and join us tonight. Um, let me just share a short bio with you about Iman. Uh, as a first-generation Palestinian-American, Iman is fluent in Arabic and maintains a second home in Ramallah, Palestine. She is the co-founder of Meet the Middle East, a local-based nonprofit that aims to foster relationships between the Middle East and the West through education and immersion travel. Iman also teaches the enrichment courses, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict from ancient history to today's headlines, as well as life under occupation, a Palestinian perspective, and regularly guest lectures to various groups in Denver metro area about Islam and the geopolitical situation of the Middle East. So we're going to have Iman share with us, and um, I hope that you enjoy this time. So I thought we'd just start with the beginning. What does Islam mean? Sure. So first of all, thanks for having me. It's been a really fun time lecturing to pub theology, and I think it's a great movement. Um, Islam essentially means peace. The root word of Islam is salam, and it derives from the Arabic word, like I said, salam. Uh, many Muslims, when we greet each other, we say assalamu alaikum. So uh, that means peace upon you, peace be upon you. We're granting peace upon our fellow Muslims, and we say the exact same thing when we leave. So Islam essentially means peace and to uh, submit to the one way of God. And so what is that way of God like? How is that practiced? I know we've probably encountered Muslims in our lives, um, observed them praying or uh, participating in Ramadan. Can you give us more information on what that practice is like? Sure. So there are around 1.3 billion Muslims in the world. Now, a Muslim essentially means someone who submits himself to Islam um, and submits to the fact that there is, in fact, only one God. We don't believe that God has partners, um, daughters, or you know, brothers, or anything like that. So um, that's why in Islam, the people who follow Islam are called 
Muslims versus in Christianity, um, the root word of being a Christian derives from Christ. So we're not called Mohammedists, we're called Muslims, people who submit. There's five pillars that Muslims follow uh, that essentially outline our worship or our, our way of life from being a Muslim. And the first is your shahada, and this is pretty much the foundation for being a Muslim. This is your declaration of faith. I declare that there is no God but Allah or God, and that Muhammad is his messenger. The second is um, prayer. Muslims pray five times a day. We pray early morning, noon, afternoon, uh, evening or sunset, and at night. Muslims, just like all Abrahamic faiths, are prescribed to fast as well. So we fast for uh, sunrise to sunset for one month during the holiest month of Ramadan in our lunar calendar. We are also required to give a percentage of our wealth to the poor, which is called zakat or alms to the poor. Um, in Islam, it's very important that wealthier Muslims subsidize, you know, uh, Muslims that are in need because we want to be all on the same level in the eyes of God. And then finally, uh, there's Hajj. Hajj is a once-in-a-lifetime pilgrimage that Muslims take to Saudi Arabia to retrace the steps of Abraham and Hagar. Now, Hajj is a very grueling and taxing pilgrimage that uh, happens over the course of about 10 days. So you're only required to go if you have the physical, cap uh, financial, and mental means to do so. Many people do this on behalf of someone in the event that they pass away unexpectedly or that they couldn't do it physically. So those are essentially um, ways that Muslims live out their beliefs on a daily or over a lifetime. Uh, you mentioned in there that this is related to Abraham and Hagar. Could you talk about how Islam is related to the other monotheistic faiths? Absolutely. So one of the misconceptions about Islam is that Muslims don't believe in the other religions. They don't believe in other prophets. And that we really focus only on Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him. When in fact, it's actually very much not true. The most uh, mentioned prophet in the Quran is Prophet Moses. And we believe in all of the prophets that preceded uh, the Prophet Muhammad, from Abraham all the way to the last prophet, uh, Muhammad. So, um, you know, we believe in Adam, Abraham, Moses, Jesus, and everyone in between, and we believe in all of their messages. Uh, Muslims also believe that Jesus is, in fact, uh, the Messiah and that he will return. We believe in Mary. She has a very large role in Islam and that she is such an important person in Islam that she has her own chapter dedicated to her in the Quran, the chapter of Mary. In addition to believing in all of the prophets, it's important to remember that Muslims also believe in the books and the people that followed. So God sent 
the Jews a prophet with the law because they were a people with no law. So he sent Jews uh, Moses and the Ten Commandments, uh, giving us the foundation for Abrahamic law. And a few hundred years later, they had forgotten two of those main principles, which was love and peace. So he sent Jesus to remind them of that. And then at the end, he sent the prophet Muhammad to remind them of all of the previous prophets and their messages and combined in one book, um, the, the Holy Quran. Having said that, just because many of the same stories that are in the Old Testament and the New Testament are in the Quran, doesn't mean that we don't believe in the Torah and the Bible. So Muslims believe in the Torah, the Bible, and the people of those books, the Jews and the Christians. So my question was kind of on a similar line, and, and I apologize if I'm asking something that's really similar, because you just provided a lot of great information about um, things that I think a lot of our listeners will be familiar with, a lot of concepts and people out of the Bible. And um, But here's my question. So I had the privilege of visiting some mosques when I was in um, Istanbul, and so I feel like I learned a little bit, but um, my I guess my question is, if someone from a more Christian background, say, went and I and went and attended like a Friday night service at a mosque, which I know typically it's just Muslims at those services, but let's say they could, what would they find to be the most interesting and different and enlivening, and what would they find to be very familiar to how they worship and some of the concepts that they see when they go to church on Sunday? See, for instance, it's a great question. First of all, I think you would be very much welcomed. Um, I will. I say this, you know, stateside, um, and it, it, yeah. it, it is different in the Muslim world only only because there are so many people. Yeah, they don't want it to be a tourist destination yeah. while we're worshiping. Totally. Yeah. But we welcome people to come to the mosque, especially on Fridays, because we want people to witness our congregational prayers. Uh, the Prophet didn't want. Um, our congregational prayers to be an imposition to your daily life. And this is what sets us apart maybe from other religions. Islam isn't a religion that's practiced, you know, on our, on our holy day or on our holidays um, or during Ramadan. It's a way of life. It's something that's incorporated into all of the things we do, whether it's what hand we eat with, you know, how we speak, how we dress. So I think to speak to your question, um, I think one of the things that would be surprising to them is essentially, um, one, we sit on the floor. We don't have pews or anything like that. Men and women are separate. Uh, Again, the reason for this is because of the way Muslims pray, which brings me to my third point. We have a physical prayer Um, We pray, you know, standing up and then prostrating and then bending all the way over, um, you know, forehead to the ground and knees to the ground as well. Very similar, actually, to to downward facing dog in in yoga, if that gives you kind of any... Child's pose, yeah. Yeah, and and child's pose. Um, So, you know, I think one of the things that they could relate to is maybe that that meditation time where we're all together, right? We're all reciting uh, verses from the Quran. And it's really that time where we're, you know, one-on-one with God. We're not looking left and right. 
We're not having conversations. We're not whispering. You know, when you're in prayer, that's what you're doing. Eyes to the ground, staying straight, you know, and, and being still and really focusing in on what it is you're trying to do and say. Um, I really encourage people to go and visit a mosque and, and see what that's like. Again, we pray five times a day, so it doesn't have to be on a Friday. And usually there's a sermon, right? So someone would go, and similar to a church service, there would be the sort of the order of service, but then right there's someone who stands up and mm-hmm. interprets and gives some good thoughts to walk away with. And, Absolutely. Yeah. It's the exact same thing, right? We have someone who's a, a learned individual, right? He... Um, gives the sermon for about 15, 20 minutes, and then we pray. And the prayer doesn't take more than five minutes. So, um, again, it's not meant to be an imposition. If we, you know, for example, we live in a non-Muslim country, uh, it's noontime, so you could go take maybe an extended lunch and uh, get in and get out back to work. Um, But, yeah, the the sermons are often about uh, maybe things that are going on around us, like, don't forget to get out and vote. It's your civic duty as a Muslim to participate in the community you live in. That's what we're supposed to do. Um, but also talks about basic things like what it means to be a good Muslim, how to dress, how to you know be around non-Muslims, and how to reflect Islam in those ways. Cool. Do you sing in your services? We do not. Um, we don't have any singing or instrumental um, you know portions to the service. Uh, it's very, um, it's the sermon, and then he recites the Quran during prayer as he leads us in prayer, and then that's it. A lot of times people can confuse his recitation as singing, but um, it's just the way we read the Quran and the way the Quran is written has a lot of, um, how do I say this? It's like um, tonal. Tonal, but also accents that force you to kind of uh, give each letter maybe a longer mm-hmm. tone. More like chanting. Kind of, yes. Um, but it's, it's the whole verse. It's the whole chapter. Okay. Yeah. So do you have a tradition of sacred music at all in Islam? or We don't. Um, you know, there are some people who have some toned-down you know, songs that may be about the religion, but is music and Islam do not really jive. How does, how do the whirling dervishes kind of fit into that? I think a lot of Americans are familiar with Sunnis and Shia, and then I think that there's like another sect of Islam that isn't often spoken about, but since a couple of us have been to Turkey, and that's, I think, maybe more common in Turkey. Yeah. Sufism. Yeah. Yeah. Sufism, yeah. yeah. So it's, it's definitely not um, something that, you know, 1.3 million Muslims practice, uh, or billion, sorry. Um, the, that sect is very small and located in really one part of the world. And, you know, it's, it's a cultural thing that they practice, but it's not necessarily, um, it, it, no, I should say, it's not an Islamic thing. Does that make sense? Sure. It's more of a sectarial thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not going to pretend to know everything there is about um, about Sufism and and um, the what, the whirling dervishes. Yes, thank you. Yeah. Um, I've seen them, and I think they're very beautiful. But 
Yeah, not not something that's practiced in Islam. Not mainline. Not mainline. No, Islam. Yeah, not not mainstream. Yeah. So I think that um, just right there, the seeing that there's like this misunderstanding about something that maybe Americans are familiar with, but isn't a traditional part of of your worship or practice. Um, I know one of your passions is about women and how we do and don't understand what what being a woman means in Islam. So would you share that with us about where how you feel about that? Yeah, I think one of the biggest misconceptions about Islam is in fact how Muslims view or treat women. I think um, to start, Muslims um, view women in a very high regard. Let me start off by saying from the off the bat that things that we see in the West, whether it's she can't drive, she can't go to school, she's a child bride, um, female mutilation, these are all symptoms of a culture that has trumped Islam. Okay? Symptoms of the culture that has trumped Islam and have no place in my religion. This is a huge misconception, and it's one that I fight almost on a daily basis. There is a chapter in the Quran called The Woman. And in this chapter, it outlines rights granted to a Muslim woman, not granted to, Mus- not granted to women in the West until the 1920s. And I think this says a lot about my religion, because if this chapter was delivered 1,400 years ago, in a time when most women didn't have basic rights, it can show how progressive my religion was at the time. Now, over time, I think just like all religions, there's been setbacks, right? There's been violence. There's been things done in the name of my religion that unfortunately have tarnished it, especially in this day and age. So uh, that's kind of what I'm, I'm combating. I'll give you an example. There was a man who loved his parents very much, and he came to the prophet and said, I love my parents, but I don't know who to respect more, my mother or my father. And the prophet said, your mother. And the man said, and then who? And the prophet said, your mother. And the man said, and then who? And the prophet said, your mother. You respect and love your mother three times more than your father, because of what she has done for you. Now, for me, I look at that as no matter what your personal relationship is with your mother, the fact of the matter is, is that we're all sons and daughters, right? We were all carried by someone for nine months, right? Someone cared for us. And, um, you know, I can speak for myself. My mother carried me more than nine months, right? She took me to basketball practice. She took me to and from school. She cooked food. She helped me with homework. She was the one on the forefront of my my life um, that that I will forever be grateful for. And that's why also in Islam, it says heaven is under the feet of your mother because of all those things that she does. So simply the things that a woman's body is capable of doing and the emotions and empathy that were allowed and afforded... um, I think, you know, sets us apart than, than men. And that's why God put in place these um, 
protections for women, uh, granting us rights in the Quran uh, through his divine word of 1400 years ago. And again, some of these are, she has the right to own her own business, to own her own wealth, to run for office, um, you know, uh, things that are very progressive even in today's society. And it's evident with the fact that the Muslim world had a woman leader before anyone in the West. And I think it's hard, at least from, from what I've studied, and I think um, even represented around the table, like we hear that and we want to believe that's so true, but, but we just haven't observed it. And that makes it hard sometimes to, to believe that there's freedom. I bump into women you know, weekly or every other week that are in full, full body coverings. And, and in my, my white privilege judgment, I, I can't help but look at them and wonder, do they really have a choice? Do they really, are they really able to choose? Do they really understand, like, the role of that in the way they're perceived by the world? And, and what does it mean to them internally? And I, I think that those are the things that sometimes make it hard for us to, to embrace this, the beauty that you're talking about, because it's, it's hard to understand from here. Sure, and I totally understand that. And I would, you know, almost reverse the question is, can you understand that they do fully understand? They do fully uh, comprehend the choices that they've made to wear the head cover. My mother, my sister, my aunts, you know, they all wear it and they wear it out of free will. And the reason that they do that is because they want people to look at what's up here in their mind and what's in their heart. They don't want to have to do their hair and to have people look at them only for their beauty. And I think it sets people apart because, you know, in Judaism, uh, Orthodox women cover, mm -hmm. um, religious Christians cover. I take groups to the Middle East, and sometimes you can't tell the difference. Yeah. But we're living in a nation where someone has to be targeted, you know? And as far back as our history goes, unfortunately, that's kind of what's plagued us, whether it was the Irish in Brooklyn, the slaves, you know, before, before the Civil War, um, even African Americans before civil rights, the Chinese pick your, West. Pick yeah. your poison. There yeah. was a time in this country where signs on on doors, on, 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 on you know, diners and things like that said no dogs and no Jews. Yeah. And I think for me, like, that makes a lot of sense. Like, as someone who's a feminist, I think that women should be responsible for making their own decisions. And I'm definitely going to take that at face value that they've thought about that. They know the, you know, implications of what they've done. And that's a choice for them. Hello, my name is Dan Rosado, and I'm the post-production guy for Brew Theology. During the recording of the podcast, we encountered some technical difficulties that required us to cut out a piece of the conversation. Rather than completely edit it out, I will narrate this part of the conversation. Sorry for the inconvenience. But at this point of the conversation, Leah cites a couple of reports that suggest that the two or three most dangerous places in the world for women are predominantly Muslim countries. Iman then asks, do you know which countries those are? Leah responds, I know Pakistan is at the top of the list and Afghanistan is at the top of the list. 
There's also some countries in Africa. Imam then proceeds. Okay, so right there, I think is your answer. It's a huge symptom of that culture that has trumped Islam. The other is that you're taking very right-wing examples and making a very broad brushstroke about the rest of Islam. So it's tough to say, I believe those statements because they are probably absolutely true, because of the way they have chosen to implement their culture over their religion, ultimately forcing women down the totem pole. Last week, I spoke about the effects that the Civil War had on Afghanistan. Afghanistan was a country that, believe it or not, the French would go on vacation. There were Muslim women doctors and lawyers, and there was a university in every corner. It was a progressive and educated country. But after the Civil War, they were so blown back into the Stone Age that it cut them off from education and any kind of way to read or engage in modern-day practices. That has ultimately led to what we see today. The same is true for Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Iran. These are all very right-wing examples of Islam. And these are the places that have chosen, absolutely, to let the culture trump the religion. As a Muslim woman, I feel 110% more safe walking in the dead of night anywhere in the Middle East by myself than I do anywhere else in the world. Because I know, as a woman, I am more protected from the men there because they understand my sanctity and virtue is so valued in society that they would be punished to a degree that is not known here in the United States. That's the difference. Countries in Sub-Saharan Africa, it's unfortunate that they are being labeled that way. These stories of female mutilation in Islam, and body mutilation is not okay in Islam. So whether it's female mutilation that is prescribed or something that is very practiced in Eritrea, Eritrea is a Christian country. So you have to be very careful how we identify, which in fact are not allowing, quote, women to have a right, and which are. I'm a woman. I'm a Muslim woman. I have a business. I work in the Middle East, and I have no problems. I can say that full-heartedly, but I'm not going to lie. There are countries like the ones we just mentioned that are much more conservative. Leah then asks, what are the solutions? How do we move forward? Now we will continue with the rest of the original recording. We apologize again for the inconvenience and noise you'll hear in the next few minutes of the conversation. I hope you enjoy. Five years ago, the Muslim world experienced the Arab Spring, and it was a chance for the Muslim world to kind of get under a lot of the dictatorships. Um, now, that was only five years ago or so, and I think where we've come has not gotten us to a very progressive place yet, and it's merged more into this era of winter, okay? But it's only been five years. Over 50% of the Middle East is under the age of 33. So I look around this room, and that's around our age. And if you think about other regions that have gone through their own dark ages, like Europe, it took them hundreds of years before they reached their renaissance. So what I'm asking from the West is allow those young people to get through their dark ages 
so they can adjust, make those changes, and, you know, emerge into their own renaissance of, you know, values that reflect the Quran and the true Islam that I lectured about last week. Not the Islam that we're seeing today in the Middle East, whether it's through ISIS in the name of Islam or, you know, more, more, more uh, um, conservative sects like Wahhabists and, and things like that that are located in Saudi Arabia. Well, I think, and think of how, I mean, I just think of how slow the progress of feminism and social equity in this country where, Absolutely. you know, it's taken, it just takes forever. <laughs> yeah. So I encourage our listeners to look at some pictures of what Iran was like culturally in the 60s and 70s, and you'll be very surprised um, to see the, the difference of what Iran has become in those you know, 50 years or so. Also, you might want to read about the Arab world during the time of the Silk Road. Um, they were the place to get educated was Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. Um, the Arab world, you know, we are the founders of algebra. We invented zero. We had some of, you know, some of the biggest influences on navigation. Um, in, in health, we had some of the most advanced libraries in Alexandria and Iraq. I mean, this was worlds ahead of the rest of you know the world at the time, yeah. and so again, we can get there. I know that. That's not the problem. It's just the rest of the world has to allow us the time to do that, and no one else is going to help us do that except for ourselves. You can't force Western democracy on a place that needs to find it for itself. Absolutely. You know. And the, and the fact of the matter is, is that many of the tenets of American democracy are already based in Islam. Yeah. I, I don't know much about, I don't, I've read a little tiny bit about um, Islamic feminism, but it seems like, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that, you know, the key is how can women within Islam and within their cultures they live in, how can they come to find an expression of their, their female worth as well as their ability to practice Islam the way they want to practice Islam, because that seems to be the risk, is that you, you might... I don't know, I think about France, like, not letting people wear the hijab. And yeah. so it's like they've gained, quote-unquote, equity, but they're not able to practice the religion that they want the way they want. And so that feels like... And that gets into the whole colonialism issue and people imposing <laughs> their cultures onto other cultures and who's right, and it's complicated. Yeah, I read a little bit of... of tried to read a little history before coming, and uh, I was just blown away by how much Islam had achieved. Like, the, the world that you had created, we, I have always seen those years around a thousand as the dark ages. There was nothing of the kind for your people. Yeah, not at all. I mean, it was absolutely amazing. You had medical advances that informed um, the Renaissance, and even into the Industrial Revolution and had ideas stolen and, you know, just kind of ransacked everything that, that you had done for the betterment of the Western world. And that's so unfair. And I think that many, I mean, I, I mean, maybe I missed a class in college or something, but I didn't know that. I, right. I didn't know any of that had existed or that, I mean, when I honestly, I had the thought of like, they're, they're just... 
a lot like us as, as Christians and the development that we've had over history. Um, there's a lot of similarities there that no one ever talks about in our media or anything else. Yeah, and, you know, I'm obviously biased to this as a Palestinian, but um, the Palestinians are the most educated Arabs in the world. The Guinness Book of World Record holder for the youngest doctor is to a Palestinian woman who wears the hijab. And, you know, she, against all odds, and I think she's out of Gaza, for God's sakes, um, against all odds, she, she managed to do these things. So, you know, education is a huge priority for Arabs and Muslims. Um, and another pride of point for me is in Bethlehem University, you know, the birthplace of Jesus, a holy place for Muslims as well. Um, 75% of the student body is women. Wow. 75% in a predominantly Christian town, right? And many, many of those are Muslim girls who, who cover. Mm-hmm. You know, so I think, um, I think, again, it speaks to where we're going, what, what we're about, and our priorities. You know, it's, it's not what uh, Americans are fed in the media. Yeah. Does, does someone like Malawa give you a lot of hope? Yeah, she does, because I think she, you know, says what we're all thinking in terms of Muslim women, you know, what we need to hear. Uh, and I think people want to hear her story, so it's good. And I think it's, it's also good because um, her story as a Muslim woman is relatable to all Muslim women, Right. Regardless of if you are viewed as oppressed or not from another outside group, you know, just like you just said, you can't help but think. Right. How. That they don't have a choice. Right. They don't have a choice. Or they don't understand. How they're viewed. The fullness of the choice. Right. And so, um, you know, I think for her, it's the same thing. I I don't want to speak on her behalf, but what I am saying is that. Even if there's a woman out there who has fully embraced her Islam, her head cover and everything, what Malala is saying is saying, no, um, these Muslim women have made these choices and they are what you consider liberated and, mm. you know, have these rights and we're okay. But you have to trust that as fellow women. Yeah. And I think, I think what's great about having you here is uh, you're probably the only Muslim that I know that I know. Sure. And so having the opportunity to just talk to you and hear your story and and to, to hear these things come from you makes a big difference. And so, I mean, I would encourage, how would you encourage us to find Muslims to get to know? Because it's, I think it's hard to, like, you can't really, like, talk to someone on the street necessarily. Right. Yeah, they yeah, may not feel safe about that yeah, right now. Yeah. But how could yeah. we do that where we could find ways to have those conversations? You know, I know that there's like meetup groups um, for like Muslim young professionals. I don't see why you guys can't go to those things and say, I'm, I really just want to build a community here and have, have these relations because quite frankly, there's a, there's a symptom that no one seems to be addressing among Americans, mm-hmm. right? And if it is to that degree where so many 
Americans don't know at least one Muslim. I mean, you're you're yeah. willing to admit it. Not many Americans are. That's the problem. And and you know they'll say sure yeah you know I I've met or I know or. Uh, but if if we can at least go to the extent and say, can I come to your events? Mm-hmm. Yes. Why 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 can't you? You know, come see what we're about. You know, because we're probably doing the same thing you are. I'm like <laughs> holding back the check cup score right now. <laughs> you know, it's like we have a lot of normal things in common that it doesn't mean we can't be doing together. And through those relationships is where you start to learn. A majority, if not you know, most of my friends outside of the mosque are, you know, Anglo-Americans. Um, and I think what happens is that they had no exposure to Islam until they met me. And so over the years, they were taught Islam and they mm-hmm. became more familiar with it. And then even more so they were able to stand up when other things were said because they became more educated. And then they were going to the Middle East. It's this domino effect that I think, you know, it's a great domino effect. Yeah, I think you just raised two really important points that I want to reiterate, one of which is, like, we have work to do, I think, as Americans to understand the people that live in our communities, understand, you know, the ways that our communities are changing and you know, they're going to, Islam is the fastest growing religion in the world. Like, it's mm-hmm. it's on us to understand, to go out, to meet, and to greet these people and make them true parts of our communities. Uh, and I think you also mentioned how important it is for change, for, you know, culture to come from the inside. And so that's the burden that we have as Americans to create and change that culture from the inside. Uh, but I think along with that, what would you say you guys are doing as a Muslim community that you guys have seen to be effective to root out when you guys see uh, signs of maybe radicalization? Because I know there's been a lot of interesting initiatives that Muslim communities have come up with to deal with that. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Yeah, it's one that I actually struggle with because, um, you know, I think it was not the last debates, but the one before. Mm-hmm. Um, a Muslim woman asked a question and, and, you know, Trump and Hillary both said, we need your eyes. We need you to be our lookout. And I'm just kind of like, I, I have a hard time going to my place of worship and being a double agent. Yeah. Th- that's not what I go there to do. You know, I go there to be one with God and to kind of almost find my center, if you will, you know. And, um, you know, I think, I don't want to speak on behalf of, of the mosques. But what I will say is that I think I've noticed, you know, sermons that are speaking more towards, again, how important it is to be in an inclusive community as an American. A lot of people are afraid of, you know, Muslims want to implement Sharia law in America. Which is apparently like intentional misinformation actually i was just hearing an article about this yeah Yeah. and and the fact of the matter is is that in islam you cannot implement sharia law if you live in a place that has law of the land that's the law you have to follow sharia is in place if you are living somewhere that has no law 
or that needs direction from the Quran or from Islam, right? That's why those things exist. And so um, it's, it's hard for me to answer just because um, when they said those things during the debate, it was really insulting to me as a Muslim because you're not asking anyone else to do that. Any other Which religious group. Yeah, I no, think like beyond surveillance, though, like from a cultural perspective, I guess that's kind of more what I'm inquiring about. Um, and I think, like you said, them engaging with their communities is like a really important Yeah, and so if you want to kind of look at it this way, you know, I know a lot of mosques in Denver are hosting open houses, you know, where we're really opening it up to anyone, you know, please come in and see what, what, what is a mosque inside? You know, what does it look like? Um, A lot of people think that a mosque is just a place where we go and pray. Actually, a mosque, and especially in its early days, was built as a community center. It was a place where people could come for counsel, come for school, come to pray, come to just, you know, hang out. It was a whole building for many purposes, right? And we still have that here in Denver. We have the Nine News Health Fair in the Colorado Muslim Society. Um, We have open houses. We have lectures. I give tours. You know, I think there's a lot of things. But um, I also think that Denver is really blessed that we don't have this, or we don't, at least we haven't, thank God, had a lot of um, incidences where we need to kind of be on our heels. Yeah. And, and I'm thanking God both ways. We haven't had, we've had them, but not a ton where, where we need to like beef up security to an nth degree. But we haven't had it to this point where we're getting threats every week, where we're getting... Um, uh, spray painted on the wall, you know, mm-hmm. like we see in Texas or or in New York or something like that. Yeah. We're not seeing those, and I'm I'm very grateful for that. And I do think that is also because Coloradans are really a step above. That's cool. That's right. <laughs> you know, it, it bothers me. I really appreciate your question, Lee, but um, it it bothers me that nobody, in terms of the media and Americans in general. Nobody, no Christian, no white Christian is going around looking for the radicalized Christians, right? We had about, I think it was three men. I don't remember if it was in Kansas. I don't want to make up details. Two, I think it was two. Yeah, two or three. I thought, I thought three were arrested. They were planning to attack a Somali refugee mm-hmm. um, mm. community. And they had, they found explosives in their car. It wasn't just, they tweeted something it was the intent they were mm-hmm. looking to harm people it barely got any media attention and i don't see any churches talking about it right and i find it odd yeah that double standard yeah we should hold our media more accountable we should hold every group to the same standard yeah and you know if you also think about say even the past 16 years um more now um let's let's take it from columbine Columbine versus things like San Bernardino, unfortunately. When we have mass shootings in the United States, nine times out of ten, it's by a white Christian male. Yeah. But what do we remember? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I think we remember Columbine. I don't know. As we, in we remember, I would hold both we, groups just as accountable. Sure, absolutely. Oh, and they are. 
Yeah. But I think we remember Columbine because we live here. I remember Columbine for sure because it was the first thing I was in school. I remember where it was. Um, but, you know, think of... There have, li- there have literally been so many that outweigh... And I'm not saying one, one is more important than the yeah. other. But what I am saying is that we focus on, um, you know, the San Bernardinos, the whichever ones I can't even think now, but... Um, the other. I mean, the other. if we're being honest, like, we focus on the ones that are committed by the other. Right. We um, don't, we and don't they, even, they even make yeah. it into the political ads, mm-hmm. right? Um, there was a political ad of the San Bernardino shooters, right? And this is what's wrong with America. Well, okay, let's talk about gun control and who's buying those guns. <laughs> you right. know, like, what's really wrong with America? Is it these two individuals that came in? You know, so there's a there's a quid pro quid pro quo here that we need to. It's like we don't attribute the violence of of the of the white Christian background individuals to their Christianity and the fact they're coming out of five hundred or that fifteen hundred years of the Crusades and right. Christianity is just a violent religion and it teaches violence and um, <laughs> therefore that was why. Now, sometimes it gets stigmatized that's mental health and that's a whole other issue or you know it's gun control or. It can be spun out. That's of what I usually but, found yeah. was the the white male who shot the uh, Planned Parenthood yeah. in Colorado Springs. I heard more talk of mental him, yeah, mental health issues than the fact that he was a fundamentalist Christian. Sure. I mean, he was very right wing, mm-hmm. but you know, just it makes me uncomfortable to see people think that oh, that's what Christianity means or this is what it means to be Christian, and I think that's what American culture in general. Is doing to Islam. That's what it means to be Muslim. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they've done some interesting, I forget what program it was on, but uh, they just like walked up and down like a busy street and they covered uh, a book and they walked up to people, they asked them what their religion was and they started reading them passages uh, that were filled with, you know, hate and terrible things. And they told them, oh yeah, this is the Quran. And then at the end, they surprised them, like, Actually, this is the Bible. This yeah. is from your religion. And I've totally was, seen like, that. Jaw drop. Mm-hmm. Didn't know what to do with themselves. Uh, so I thought that was, I mean, very interesting. We need more education about that. Because I think the misconceptions a lot of the times of Islam, are, the thing that's crazy to me about the misconceptions of Islam is that the correlations with Christianity are like so tight and so there in so many ways. And then someone will just put them on totally different levels and have totally different ideals about what the religion is supposed to intend and mean and how it's portrayed. Well, and, and part of that is is the, the Christian church's fault because the big movement in the 80s and 90s was towards a thing called apologetics, which is the defense of, defense of your faith. And so you learn the basic tenets of lots of different belief systems and how to beat them in the salvation game. And so that's all the knowledge that many, many of our Christians have is this five-point scale. Okay, well, I know these five things, and so I'm going to find a way to defeat them, and then we win. And that's not a helpful dialogue at all. Um, But it does, I think, shape a huge chunk, especially of evangelicalism. And, And when that's the kind of education we're up against, there's a lot of work that has to be done. Yeah, and I think everything, it's important that I say everything I've said tonight, and if you were there last week, everything I said was Islam in its purest form. Okay, now, 
however every individual chooses to practice Islam, or however any country chooses to impose or not impose, that is between them and God. Okay, what I've lectured and what I've talked about tonight is, is again, what God has prescribed for Muslims. But what you may have seen otherwise, again, I cannot speak to um, directly simply because um, as a Muslim, it is not my place to judge that person's actions. And um, there is a day and time for that. It's the day of judgment. And God will be the one judging, not, not me and hopefully not my fellow Muslims. And I think that's a great place for us to, to end, is that it's, it's not about our judgments. It's about living harmoniously and learning to love our neighbor and bring compassion into the world around us. That's what we're aiming for. And so I want to thank so much. Thank you, Iman, for thank coming you. and being here with us and, and just answering our questions honestly and putting up with us. So yeah, thank you thank so much. You. Um, and we want to encourage all of you, if you want to learn more about what Iman does, go to meetthemiddleeast.org. There you can learn more about Islam. You can also learn about how you could travel to the Middle East and experience some of this firsthand. And so we encourage you to do that. If you have any questions, feel free to email them and ask. So thank you so much for joining us at Brew Theology. Again, you can find us at, at Brew Theology on Facebook and Instagram, at Brew underscore Theology at Twitter.com. And really, for real, the website will be up any day now. So please join us again uh, for Brew Theology. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.